Now, in verse one, chapter 21, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I remember many years ago when I probably was a student, I heard R.C. Sproul say that once a person sees the sovereignty of God in the Bible, that person begins to see the sovereignty of God everywhere in the Bible. That is, once God opens our eyes to see that God controls everything in a portion of Scripture, as it's revealed in some parts of Scripture, and maybe one verse spoke to you more than another verse in the Bible when you first were understanding the sovereignty of God. Once you see it, though, in one part of your Bible, pretty soon you begin to see it uh, everywhere in the Scriptures. You begin to see it in the Old Testament. You begin to see it in the, in the Law, in the Prophets, in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, in the Epistles. You find it everywhere, especially in salvation. We are told that God does all his holy will. One of the verses that spoke to me many years ago on this subject was Psalm 115, verse 3. A friend actually showed me this verse, and ever since he showed it to me, I've never forgotten it. And that is that God does whatever he pleases. God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3, the second part of it. Now, tonight, our text is talking about this very thing, boys and girls, that God is absolutely sovereign and he is so sovereign that the book of Proverbs is saying here that he controls kings. That is, if we thought that there was anybody who is autonomous in this world and by autonomy, boys and girls, I mean somebody who has self rule, somebody who is a ruler unto themselves, you might think old kings. Certainly would have been that, where kings often themselves were the law. And yet, what do we find? The Bible says that there is a king over the kings. And God is absolutely sovereign over the kings of the heart. Now, he compares it to the moving of water. Now, this might be lost a little bit upon us in our own day uh, due to sprinklers and things like that. But in this culture and in this climate in the Middle East, uh, one of the ways that you irrigated was by doing little channels and opening up the water uh, to flow through the channels that had been made as a way of irrigating a particular field for the crops. Now, today we have sprinklers uh, that do much of that work. Some of them uh, are uh, overground sprinklers that sprinkle high above. Some irrigate by way of drip uh, and maybe underground. But either way... Um, it, the idea here is that just as the old farmer was able to guide the water to where he wanted the water to go in his field, the Lord is able to guide the heart of the most powerful men in the world. God is sovereign over the very thoughts and intentions and the hearts of those who are very powerful in this world. And that's just a poetic way of explaining that God is all powerful. For if God can have power over the hearts of prime ministers and princes and kings, dictators and presidents, then God can have power over anyone or anything. There's nobody that is outside the control of God. So God does control the heart of President Trump, Prime Minister May, President Putin, President Xi Jinping in China. He controls their hearts like small rivulets of water in a 
dry and arid land. These people's hearts are under the authority and the sovereignty of the Lord. Now, we see this in Scripture in many places. I'll just give you some samples here. For example, maybe one that came immediately to your mind was Pharaoh, because the word heart is actually used in the text where we are told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. And also in Romans chapter 9, Paul even comments on that fact when he's talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Showing that from the example of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is sovereign in the affairs of salvation. Those who he, those whom he elects and those whom he foreordains to reprobation. That is all under the sovereignty of God. That God raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, Paul says. That God's sovereignty might be demonstrated in his life by hardening him to the point where he would be brought under judgment and would not believe. We can see it in other portions of the scriptures. If you want to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 4, the book of Daniel, and we see with Nebuchadnezzar in verse 30, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. Nebuchadnezzar's on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar reflects, it says, and says this in verse 30. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built? Now, boys and girls, you can see that was an offense to God. Because here, Nebuchadnezzar is taking credit for something that has been given to him by God. And he is saying, look what I've done. I'm great. I've built this Wonderful empire. I myself have built this royal residence. And, and he says, my, the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. And then verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, that is, Nebuchadnezzar was saying these words, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. He lost his power. And you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle. You can imagine how embarrassing this must have been for the Babylonians that the king now is a crazy man. And he's living like a wild man among the animals and his hair is getting long and stringy and his nails are getting long. And he's becoming more and more beast like eating grass. Uh, Verse 34 But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And it goes on. So Nebuchadnezzar is brought to repentance by the sovereignty of God. God brought him under judgment. God brought him out and he gives praise to The Lord, you might think of Jonah, where Jonah goes to Nineveh after you remember being swallowed by the great fish, boys and girls. And you'll remember that he goes and he preaches at Nineveh. And what happens? The heart of the king is softened and he repents and he calls for a day, three days, actually, of fasting, prayer, sackcloth, so that God's anger might be uh, averted. Herod, we are told in the book of Acts, was killed 
by the Lord because he received praise from people that he was a God and not a man. In Revelation chapter 13, we see that the dragon who represents Satan gives power to the beast. The beast, of course, represents an authoritarian government power, along with the false prophet who looks like a sheep but speaks like the dragon. Uh, and all the kings of the earth, we're told in Revelation 19, six chapters later, we are told that the beast, the false prophet, the kings of the earth who wage war against Christ are thrown into the lake of fire. That God is sovereign over them. They try to wage war against Christ and against his church. But he who rides on the white horse with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth is victorious over them. He's sovereign over them. Uh, we see this in all the way back in Genesis where God strikes Pharaoh. Uh, not, not the Pharaoh uh, of, uh, of the patriarch's days, but uh, the Pharaoh all the way back to Abraham's day rather. Rather than Joseph's day, I meant. Uh, God strikes the, the Pharaoh back then because why? He took Sarai, uh, who is Abraham's wife, and he strikes plagues and brings Pharaoh to repentance. Then one of the interesting ones, I think, is found in Second Chronicles. Look at Second Chronicles uh, chapter 36. Second Chronicles. Chapter 36, we'll look at this in along with the passage from Isaiah, because this involves another king who is a pagan king. Not all of these kings. In fact, most of the kings I'm giving you examples of are unbelieving, unbelieving kings, kings outside the covenant. And yet the Lord has control over their lives and their hearts. Now, in this chapter of Second Chronicles, chapter 36, Look at the last two verses before you get to the book of Ezra. Deals with a king, boys and girls, named Cyrus. C-Y-R-U-S. Now look at verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So this was prophesied by the prophets prior to the exile. Notice here, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, not the king of Israel, not the king of Judah, the king of Persia. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and here it is. This is what Cyrus decreed. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord. Now, that's the covenantal name of God. He's calling God by his name, his covenantal name revealed at the bush. The Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I mean, this would be like the president of the United States. Of course, he's forbidden to do this in the Constitution, but this would be like the president of the United States saying, I'm going to build Churches everywhere. Cyrus says here, I'm going to rebuild the temple. I'm going to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now, how did that happen? Well, if you look at Isaiah... You'll see Isaiah prophesied, chapter 44 and 45, Isaiah prophesied 
that he would he would use Cyrus for this end. Now, Cyrus isn't even on the scene yet, which makes this prophecy all the more amazing, which is why your liberals don't believe it's a real prophecy. Because how could they know the name of the guy who was going to do this before he was on the scene? And so liberals will dismiss this entirely and say, oh, this, is just, this was just added in later. But look at uh, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now, he's talking about a pagan king. And he's calling Cyrus my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem... She will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So Isaiah here is saying Cyrus is going to rebuild the temple. And then you look at chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of the kings to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. And, and he goes on, uh, just dump, jump down with me here, just a little bit down to verse uh, 5. He's, well, uh, let's just verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you the title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. God is doing this. He is sovereign. He is in control of history and he has ordained in the future that hasn't yet come to pass that some king named Cyrus is going to make a decree to cause the people to go back to Judah and they're going to rebuild the temple. And then in verse six, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Notice here his sovereignty extends to all events, peaceful events, calamitous events. He controls everything. Jesus told Pilate that he would have no authority except it came from God. That it is the Lord who is in control. Now, having said this, before us, uh, and I think given a lot of biblical support for our text, let me make a few applications for us before we come to the Lord's table. First of all, given the sovereignty of God over the hearts of kings and princes and prime ministers and presidents, I think one of the first things we can think about by way of application is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where the Apostle Paul tells us, to pray for kings and all those in authority. Now, here's what I want you to understand, young children. Your prayers change history. Your prayers make history. Your prayers move nations. You remember Daniel at the end of his life, he's in his mid-80s by the end of his life. And he is praying while fasting and reading the book of Jeremiah. And he says, Lord, by my watch, the 70 years are up. 
And so Daniel does, it does something very interesting. He doesn't just passively say, well, I'll just sit back and wait till it happens. Because God is true. And God's word will come to pass. What's interesting is he takes the promise of God. And the fact that God is sovereign over nations. And if anybody knew God was sovereign over the nations, it was Daniel. I mean, Daniel saw it with his own eyes. He saw his own city sacked. He himself being carried off into exile. He saw the rise of the Babylonians. He saw the defeat of the Babylonians. He saw the rise of the Medo-Persians. And yet, he, doing a Bible study, he prays. What I want you to see is that Daniel does not use the sovereignty of God as for a reason not to pray. Saying, well, God will just do it. He uses the sovereignty of God and what Jeremiah has written about the return of God's people and about the edict of Cyrus. And he fasts. Think about that. He fasts for three days. That is, he sees the, the promises of Scripture. And this is what I think it should be instructive for us. He sees the promises of Scripture. He knows the sovereignty of God. But it causes him to pray all the more, not all the less. I think if you really want to be a Calvinist, you ought to be a person devoted to prayer. The Calvinist above all people who knows about the sovereignty of God should be praying all the more, not all the less. History is made in prayer closets. God has control over the hearts of kings and presidents and prime ministers. And therefore, we should be praying all the more. Because why? Scripture has told us to pray for them. We have an express command in 1 Timothy chapter 2. To pray for them. And therefore we should pray all the more. That they would be influenced. You know, I, I have never forgotten the story from many years ago when President George H.W. Bush was running for president. And I was struck by the fact that um, folks who otherwise are very just what you might consider mainline Episcopalians. Nevertheless, I thought it was interesting that Barbara Bush testified she could feel the prayers of God's people praying for her. That there, she had a sense that maybe beyond her own ways of, of expressing it or anybody's ways of expressing it, she could tell God was at work. God was directing their hearts and that, that, that God's people were praying and she was a recipient of those Prayers and those blessings. The Bible says that God controls the hearts of kings. And therefore, if God controls the hearts of kings, he controls everything. We should pray for President Trump. We should pray for his salvation, his conversion, that he would know the gospel. He would know Jesus Christ personally, that he would listen, that he might repent of sin, that he might trust Christ, that he might begin to read the Bible, that he might begin to pray. We should pray for the House of Representatives. We should pray not just for the people on our side of the aisle, but pray for those on the opposite side of the aisle, whatever our aisle and the opposite side of the aisle means to you. That we ought to pray, not think that anybody is beyond the power of, of God. Listen, if, if the Lord can get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, uh, he can get Nancy Pelosi's attention. 
if, if, if he can get Cyrus to do great things for the people of God, uh, he can change the hearts of those in the House of Representatives, in the Senate. God has their hearts in his hand and he directs them in the way that he chooses. And, and we should pray for a softening of the heart, especially on the issue, I think, of abortion and prenatal life. That their hearts would be softened, that they would repent and see the evil for what it is. That they would be as nursing fathers to the church. Now, if God controls the hearts of kings, he has everything under his control. This also, by way of application, should give us great assurance and comfort. The sovereignty of God is a great comfort to believers in Jesus Christ. Knowing Romans 8.28, everything is working together for good. God is in control and there, even our sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. And that God is using those things to shape us into the image of our Lord and Savior. And because God controls all, we should have bold access to God. We should make use of the privilege of being the children of God by going to him as a father. The father delights in hearing his children. Just as you delight in hearing your little kids and grandkids come to you and speak to you. That the Father delights in, in us and we should take advantage of that. We should not be strangers in prayer with the Lord. Also, we need to realize that God controls the destiny of all nations. God controls the destiny of all nations. The Bible says that God sets the boundaries of the nations. God is in control of everything. He's working everything out. For the ultimate good of the church. And we may come upon calamitous times where people are figuratively losing their heads and their wits about them. Because it seems like everything's out of control, but nothing is out of control. God is orchestrating everything according to his decrees. And we should rest in that. I don't know if this is an apocryphal story or not, but there is this story supposedly out west in the 19th century American West, when it was called the Wild West, that uh, there was a chaos going on in one town and people were running hither and thither in the community. And two men were walking uh, in that proverbial street, uh, dusty street, and they looked at each other and they kept on walking. And then one of them, noticing the serenity of the other man in the midst of this turmoil, turned to him and said, what is the chief end of man? And the guy said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And he said, I knew you were a catechism man. I could tell just the fact that you were trusting and resting in the sovereignty of God who controls everything, including calamity. We also know that we should pray because God desires kings and princes and judges to kiss the son. If I can use the language of the old King James in Psalm 2, those who are in political authority are told to kiss the son, that there is a command given to them that they should honor Jesus Christ and submit to him. And so we ought to pray. One last thought as we come to the Lord's table, as we look at the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood for him in the cup. We need to remember that God was in control of the hearts of Pilate and Herod and that these two men put Jesus Christ to the cross, but did so so that your redemption, your 
salvation could be secured. If God had not had the hearts of those men in his hand, something else might have come about. But God is sovereign over everything and uses even the wicked inclinations of men to carry out the most holy and blessed purposes. God used the conspiracy of Pilate and Herod to secure for us eternal life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross according to the plan of God. He gave himself to that authority and sovereignty of God. He told Pilate, as I mentioned earlier, you would have no authority except it come from my Father in heaven. He understood that submitting to the evil that Pilate and Herod had planned for Jesus Christ, he was submitting ultimately to his Father in heaven. And by submitting to the Father, he secured for us an unshakable uh, salvation. Amen. Father.